everyone. Thank you for joining us for Sheepdog Nation's podcast. And this is podcast two. We are excited about our guests today from the standpoint of us being able to learn more about their experiences and what it is that they have done for our nation, uh, what defines them as sheepdogs, and more importantly, just getting their thoughts on where we are today um, within the sheepdog nation realm of how we are taking care of or maybe not doing as good a job as we should in taking care of our men and women that have served in uniform, both as military and first responders. Uh, and dig in a little bit on how maybe we can do a better job as a nation and how our military leaders might put some thought into things that they can do for our active duty and reserve National Guard personnel before they transition out of uniform. So uh, with that being said, I'm going to go around the horn and let each of these young gentlemen introduce themselves and uh, take about five minutes talking about uh, who and what they are. And uh, Mike, if you don't mind, we'll start with you. Hey, thanks, Lance. So my military career is a uh, very complex matrix or a chart of active duty, starting out in the National Guard, jumping out of there, running into the Army for four years and trying the Army Reserve and back to National Guard and then uh, uh, five or six mobilizations and staying on active duty orders, uh, working at the Pentagon with uh, Ed and uh, some other projects we were doing. And before I knew it, I had so much active duty time, I had enough to uh, uh, be assessed into the active army and finish my last two years, which took me to Afghanistan and then uh, about a year at Walter Reed where I retired. Thank you for that, Mike. And so you and Ed spent some time together. And so uh, on that note, Ed, if you will, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, Mike and I share that background. Uh, you kind of become, uh, Lance, you'll appreciate this. I, so I started in the Marine Corps. Um, so Semperfy, and, uh, you would have loved me, uh, as a Sergeant major because I was promoted and demoted four times in my time in the Marine Corps. So you can appreciate the, uh, the young spirited Marine I was at the time, but Mike and I both, um, were kind of what we call guard bums. Um, and we just kind of, you know, we got called up. My first deployment was in 1998, um, and I went to Bosnia uh, back in the day. Then I went back to Bosnia in 2001. That's where Mike and I connected. Um, we shared. I was the division public affairs officer. And like anything in the National Guard, most uh, folks you see will have anywhere from three to four, you know, MOSs. I'm trying to remember what they call them in the uh, Marine Corps. But, MOSs uh, as well. Yeah. So we, um, you know, so uh, we, he and I did the public affairs thing together. And then... Um, we, uh, you know, always stayed in touch. Good, you know, built that good friendship between um, he was the senior NCO when I was in Bosnia. And uh, we really just worked very well together. And then uh, come 2006, uh, Mike and I were working at the Pentagon together. And I, um, I went the time I was an aide to a three star and Mike was working the office. He was the senior enlisted aide to the uh, Sergeant Major of the uh, um, National Guard. And so at the end of my, uh, you know, functioning life as an aide, my boss said, what do you want to do? And I said, I'd like, I'd like to go and do my part and got connected to Afghanistan. And um, so uh, Mike and I, uh, I looked at Mike and I said, hey, I need, I need a Sergeant Major for my team. Will you go with me? And he said, yes. And so we went to Afghanistan together. And I don't know if you know Mike's story, my story. Uh, so September 2nd, uh, 2007, uh, Mike and I were an ID blast. And uh, Mike was up in the gun turret at the time. And he really took the, the brunt of it. And uh, uh, so I looked, I remember looking right across uh, as he was in the vehicle. And he was, uh, I thought for a moment he was, for more than a moment that he, I, I just got my, my good friend killed. 
And uh, Mike, I hope I'm not talking out of school here. So Mike has two boys. And um, uh, Mike's dad was killed in Vietnam as a special forces. And you may not know that. But I thought to myself that I, you know, how could I ever how could I ever talk to, you know, I don't know why that all went through my head because he, he's dear to me as a warrior and a friend and one hell of a soldier too. So, you know, you go through those experiences as you wear, uh, and it just, it changes you, uh, in a way that most people don't understand. And, uh, especially people who haven't had intense combat experiences. Uh, and Mike also had, uh, Contrary to popular belief, there was more than just Marines in Fallujah. And so, uh, uh, Mike, uh, you know, Mike was up there for that, that whole event. Uh, and uh, one of our uh, soldiers that worked for Mike and then worked for us, uh, I don't know, Matt, was it a couple of years ago, Mike? Uh, probably two years ago he passed away. Yeah. So Matt was our driver. And so Matt didn't necessarily get a lot of physical injuries like Mike and myself, um, but he did get, uh, he was never really the same after. And unfortunately um, uh, Matt struggled with uh, a lot of things, really had post-traumatic. He had a TBI and unfortunately he found solitude in, um, you know, consumption of alcohol and uh, probably didn't help that he was taking some of the medications that he was taking and drinking and eating too much. And unfortunately he had a heart attack and died. So, you know, and as my, as Matt went through this process and I know we were kind of talking about, you know, it's a great question. You know, the army was aware of what was going on with Matt and they, you know, they put him into an, uh, you know, at, they had the transition units. So I actually commanded a, a, a warrior transition unit in uh, Fort Gordon in Georgia. So I, I got a lot of experience with, um, with that process of, you know, uh, trying to uh, get people to start making positive choices and then helping them move out of the, uh, the army. And it was an, uh, uh, Matt just, although he tried um, to do, but he just, I don't know, Mike, how would you say it? Uh, he was just kind of lost without a safety net. You know, he, yeah. uh, he was great when he had a military unit around him, but on his own, he, he needed that, uh, that extra guidance, I think. And there was nothing that made him prouder than wearing the uniform. Uh, that was his whole identity and it meant a lot to him. So, uh, he, he was with me in Iraq and then he was with me in Fallujah and, uh, we needed somebody to help our command team get around Afghanistan. We had 18 combat outposts and, uh, I called Matt and said, Hey, if we could get you on orders, would you, would you come over here to Afghanistan and uh, be the driver for Colonel Larkin and myself? And he jumped at it, and he was there, and he was instrumental, um, great soldier, uh, good friend, and a uh, uh, very good father and a husband to his family. Yeah, and uh, we, we were the you know, his, we, we stayed connected with Matt. Mike did a better job than I did, but we were one of the few that were connected to him to try to keep him for lack of better description going off the deep end, you know, and, uh, but you can't be there every day. And the impact on his family was immense. So I, I know we're probably going down a rabbit hole here, but that's how, intense it is i feel that um you know we don't leave people out there to to falter and i think uh holistically some of our vets just aren't built to try to navigate all these systems um i mean i just looked at it today i have 12 different logins for the various uh va and uh you know these health and yeah, I, you know, I'm, I can deal with it, but it's, there's gotta be an easier way. Um, I recently helped 
uh, neighbor of mine. I'm going to tell you how poor this guy is, is that me and my neighbors were cutting him firewood. I, I go between uh, South Carolina and Georgia. Um, and, uh, you know, he's a vet. So, you know, we all chip in to help this guy heat his home. But it took me the better part of almost five years to finally get him to sit down and do a VA claim so that he didn't have to worry about firewood or, you know, he could get through. I mean, so listen, I I don't know if these are extreme examples. These are personal examples, but um, it's just connecting. I mean, from a, from a, the low end part, uh, Lance, I think the connecting uh, where we make, I mean, you have a a strong organization that has a mission, right? And you guys uh, have been very successful at, focusing and and uh, providing energy with um you know all of our you know your veterans first responders um and it makes a difference but it's the folks that slip through the cracks you know and so i you know it 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 occupies my thoughts on what's the best way to uh address that mike what do you think well uh i don't know if Lance wants to participate in his podcast or not. <laughs> yeah, that's no, true. No, no. Hey, well, you know, I, I will share, and I, I love listening to y'all, so please, yeah. you know, open that, you know, open Pandora's box, so to speak. But I will stress that everything that you mentioned is, unfortunately, more and more of what we hear is the norm, right, is that, you know, we talk about suicide and the epidemic oh. of suicide daily, but we're not talking about how many of these men and women are drinking themselves to death? How many of them are killing themselves with poor life choices that include them, you know, turning to a life that does not involve them getting up off that couch, physical fitness, proper diet, you name it. And it leads to early death that for me is, is just as powerful as if they put a gun to their head, but it's, it's the challenge that I think for us, and that we as an organization keep going back to is that it has to begin. The transition has to begin while they're still in the military, because to your point, if you have a soldier, Marine, sailor, airman, guardman, guardsman, whatever, whatever the title is in the profession, first responder of them wearing a uniform, we always talk about within sheepdog, it's the armor. So, you know, for example, we've all got, you know, 25 to 30 plus years individually. And so we're talking, you know, 80 plus years between the three of us. Uh, How much money was invested in us, right? And we call it armor. How much armor was put on us during our service? And the challenge being that then when we transition out, how much money and time was put into helping us take that armor off? How much time and money was invested in teaching us how to transition from being a professional warfighter into now a professional civilian? And that's where the disconnect and the breakdown happens is these men and women leave a culture, a lifestyle and a job and enter a community that in many ways they no longer recognize and at the same time no longer recognize them. So it's understanding that if we're going to make a change, we can do all we can do out here on the back end. But if we really want to stop the problems that are taking place when these men and women leave the the service, we've got to begin preparing them before they take the uniform off, right? So I think that's what you've really shared is, uh, and and Matt was his name, correct? Yes. that when he left, who who helped him make the transition? Who prepared him for a life outside of the military? Uh, and I would say that that's where the failure really lies, is that we as a nation, we as a government, we as a military, uh, that's where we're failing these men and women. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, I think uh, there's a couple of factors here. Uh, one... Um, there's a lot of responsibility for the veteran to do his part to, to reintegrate. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he has to take some steps forward. And I, I think he needs 
um, or she needs kind of like, you know, a mentor to lead them through because, you know, there's, there's the big organizations that want to help veterans, but um, when that person gets to where they live in, you know, the middle of Kansas, uh, resources are limited. I was fortunate when I retired, I was right in the DC region and, um, you know, I couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting some veterans organization trying to help me out. So I was real fortunate, but, uh, like right now I live in Wyoming and, uh, I'm telling you resources are pretty thin here. <laughs> very thin. So there's a lot of guardsmen from the Wyoming army national guard and the Wyoming air national guard that have been deploying for, you know, the past 20 years. And I don't know where they're getting their help. Uh, the VA hospital, uh, the only VA hospital is the one in Cheyenne. And it's a good hospital, but, you know, it's, its resources are limited. Uh, specialty care has to go through the community care process. And uh, that's a roadmap that some veterans are going to need help navigating. And it's not easy but, to get to, depending on where you yeah. live in Wyoming, right? Uh, right. The challenge is to get to the resource. So absolutely. And we, right. you know, you brought up a good point in there, Mike, about veterans need to know how to take care of themselves, right? And it is mm. maybe having that mentor that does a better job of helping them prepare for that transition by teaching them how to to make it and, and take care of themselves. Because at the end of the day, we stress how if a man or woman gets to a point where they're starting to think about taking their own life or using drugs, you, you fill in the blank with a poor life choice. They've got to know how to walk themselves back or talk themselves back. Right. And if they don't have the training or the knowledge on how to do that, and there's no one there to help catch them when they stumble, uh, they're, they're ultimately going to fail. And that, that's a big part, I think, of the heavy side of the discussion is, all right, yeah, there's so much that the military, the government, and other nonprofits can do. But to your point, men and women have to take ownership a little bit on preparing themselves, understanding what's to come. But I think that also comes with that mentor piece. If there's no one there telling them about what's about to come or what's about to happen, it's hard to prepare for it, right? And that's where I go back to with the military. The military does this amazing job of teaching you how to become a warrior. But on the backside, are we doing enough to teach them how to unbecome a warrior, right? How to transition. And, you know, I think that's that, for me, the continued conversation of, yeah, we got to teach them how to take care of themselves, but who's going to teach them? Who's going to take the time to prepare them for that that next journey? Uh, and I, I do right. think that's a, a challenging piece. Now I have to stop for a second, and uh, mm. because this keeps jumping back in my head, Mike, you were the you were the senior enlisted advisor for Ed at the time, and you were you a colonel at the time, Ed, when he was your senior enlisted advisor? Well, he was at a time. The first time I met Mike was I was a major. You were a major then, and what rank were you when you were in that turret, Mike? I was a sergeant major. major. So what were you doing in that turret as a sergeant major is the question I'm I'm really going back to. Mike, you want to tell Uh, them uh, how thin we were there? I mean, I got in the turret. I I was a lieutenant colonel at the time. I was in the turret, too. We took turns driving turret. We didn't have enough. You were in the turret as well. (laughs) So you had a a major, and at some point, were you a lieutenant colonel in the turret as well? I I was a lieutenant colonel when I was in a – Afghanistan with Mike and we were we ran the brigade ETT team for the two and four, two, mm-hmm. 201st um uh corps um as they call them Which in Afghan Afghan and uh we just we couldn't keep they just didn't have enough bodies I mean so you filled saw a need you filled a need and that well, yeah, was it, a need sometimes well, oh, so you, I, want to, you want to be able to shoot back. <laughs> yeah, well, at the time, my boys were uh, pretty young still, and I looked at some of these guys that we had uh, working in our talk, and 
I just didn't want to pull one of those 18, 19 year old guys and put them up in the gun turret. You know, I just, sometimes being a good leader is not much different than being a good parent. Hey, there's, I mean, there's a lot of similarities. That it's such a powerful statement because I'm going to tell you right now, Mike and, and Ed, both of you, um, I mean, I've worked for some amazing commanders and some amazing senior enlisted. Um, and it just wasn't that often that you saw anyone at that level get up in a gun turret. So uh, it speaks highly of both of you. And to your point, Mike, as leaders, setting the example. And yeah, especially as a parent now, I can imagine um, if you're looking at those boys and looking at and imagining them being your sons, uh, it's, it's powerful to say, you know, I don't want to put my son in one of those gun turrets. I wouldn't want to put someone, so I don't want to put someone else's son in there. So I'll jump up in it. Uh, and that's, that speaks so highly of both of you, but, uh, yeah, we amazing were, in a, we were in a bad neighborhood, you might say. So, uh, the probability of us having a significant event, uh, really started increasing each month for some reason, you know, you get into the summer, uh, the summer fighting season, I guess. And, um, you know, we, we became, uh, very interesting to the Taliban at that time. They really took an interest in us. Yeah. Hey, uh, Lance, can I just go back a little bit? You know, I, I, and I don't want to retread ground here, but no, please do. Please do. Well, you were mentioning about the transition part and I don't know what the Marine Corps experience was. Uh, and Mike, uh, I know that they had some version as you transitioned from Walter Reed, but so I go down to, uh, Fort Stewart, um, and I, I go to the, you know, the, you, to your point, the transition thing. And it was, it was really just I, the way I left. And, and again, I was leaving as a colonel. It was designed for folks that were generally leaving after their first enlistment or talking about college benefits. And there was some. So it was in for all intents and purposes. Uh, and the VA came in and they, you know, they had this real general overview and then the, you know, they're saying, Hey, go to the website. Right. And you're right. And so Mike and I both have done this as probably have you and some of your, your teammates, right. Is if someone comes to you and asks you about how do they get connected to this process and what should they be looking at? Where can you navigate this stuff and how do you put in a claim or whatever echelon of things they need to make them healthy and whole. Right. It's, um, I mean, if I didn't have Mike uh, as I transitioned off of active duty and some of my other, you know, very good friends pointing me in the right direction, reviewing things that I had written. And um, it's a wonderful gentleman. Uh, What's John's last name, Mike, at Walter Reed? John Dodson. 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 Vietnam vet who was severely wounded. I think, what, John, have two or three Purple Hearts? Three and two TBIs. And uh, but his whole function in life is to mentor uh, combat injured shoulders at, at Walter Reed. I mean, the guy just gives him himself and he took the time to give him uh, give himself to me. So, I mean, that's the connection. Right. But if you uh, you know, we're talking about you got to self-motivate a little bit. So it's not only, you know, getting people connected. It's uh, Lance, you, you mentioned how do we get people to make those healthy choices? which are to get off the couch, right? And not find solace in alcohol or drug abuse. You know, uh, I just like yourself, I find solace in putting a chainsaw on my hand and cutting wood, right? Or hard physical work as much as I can do at 62. <laughs> but, um, and Mike's the same way. You know, I find that uh, guys that have gone through and gals who've gone through very difficult situations, if you can, refocus and then give them a purpose and they really get healthier quicker. Oh, yes. And that's a, a, a huge part of when we talk about that transition, you go from feeling like you have a purpose to then wondering what your purpose is. You know, what, what's, what's next for me now on that side, I'd like to touch on that a little bit more, but we're going to take a, a quick break and we're going to come back with uh, Ed and Mike and, dig a little bit more into that purpose side, but then also uh, we're going to ask them a few questions about 
their favorite part of their service, some of the things that they saw that they really loved or laughed at maybe, and then uh, a couple of the harder things that they maybe saw and uh, the men and women that they served that they appreciate the most. But with that being said, we'll be right back here at Sheepdog Nation. Thank you as always for joining us and we'll be right back. everybody, Sergeant Major Lance Nutt here, uh, founder and president of Sheepdog Impact Assistance, uh, here today to talk to you about the importance of getting up off the couch. Our organization is focused on reminding our combat veterans and our first responders that have been injured in the line of duty. Uh, and when we talk about injuries, combat stress, whatever that might be, uh, both physical and emotional both being those trigger points on why a lot of times you might find yourself at home sitting on that couch. Um, our organization obviously is focused on getting you up off that couch uh, and whether that's through disaster response opportunities to continue serving through a disaster response mission or through our outdoor adventure program taking our veterans and first responders hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, canoeing, skydiving, scuba diving, snowmobiling, you name it. If basket weaving underwater is what helps get you up off that couch, we're dedicated to doing just that. Um, so, hey, one, when was the last time you got off the couch? Two, if you haven't recently, why and what is it going to take to get you there? One of the simplest things you can do for body and mind and getting off that couch can be as simple as walking, walking around your neighborhood, finding a trail, you name it. Just get up off your butt and engage in life in a positive way, all right? That's me for today. You're gonna find us talking about more things as an organization based on what we're doing, uh, what we're going to do as we continue to grow and expand nationwide. Um, and the ways that we are improving the lives of our veterans and first responders and making sure they do not forget the importance of staying off that couch. Don't forget, hashtag, get off the couch. I'm Sergeant Major Lance Nutt, Sheepdog Impact Assistance. Thank you for listening to me rant today. I'm out. Have you had difficulty falling or staying asleep? No. Are you feeling distant from other people? No. Are you having negative beliefs the world around you? No. Have you been blaming yourself for the stressful experience or what happened after it? Shots fired, 147, Maple Street. Requesting backup. All right, hey, we're back with Sheepdog Nation. We've got a couple, well, I have to add myself into this these days. I used to say old war fighters, and I guess <laughs> I'm one of those old war fighters myself. But uh, the the gentleman that we have with us today, you know, uh, Mike Welsh and uh, Ed Larkin, um, two men that have served our great nation, and I think we were adding it up a few minutes ago. Ed, how long did you serve? Between my active duty time, I had uh, a total of, uh, I think it was 23 years and 20 and eight months. I'd have to double check. And then I, but a total of 38 years between reserve and active duty time. Active duty time. Wow. And you, uh, you eventually retired as a Colonel. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, I was a Maverick. I didn't get commissioned until I was 30 years old. At the time I actually had to get a waiver. I was just an old guy that had an opportunity, good mentors, uh, as you're probably aware, you know, people who, you know, showed you your potential versus what you thought your potential was. And I, Absolutely. and I thank thank them all, you know, I had an so incredible experience in the Marine Corps. I enlisted sure was in the Marine Corps, active mm -hmm. duty army and national guard. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Or I guess then, uh, Mike is. A, I mean, let me. Uh, we would we were considered AGR, Active Guard and Reserve. Okay. 
Yeah. Okay. I mean, and then, uh, so we worked out of the Guard Bureau in Washington, D.C. Uh, I don't know if it's an interesting thing or not, but when you're, they sent me, I did two tours in Korea. Uh, I, I mean, I, 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 you familiar with uh, Camp Robinson down in Little Rock? Yes. I, I, I was a commandant uh, at their, at our army school there, army guard national. Uh, I, so I ran that place for a couple of years. So I love Arkansas. It's a great place to live. Um, so I, you know, again, Mike and I had very non-traditional careers. You never know where it was going to go. I was a, an aide to a three-star. I commanded a warrior transition battalion, a schoolhouse. I spent three years on Capitol Hill, Hill as a legislative fellow so, you know, it's, it was really, uh, super lucky, um, uh, super lucky to have these really vast and different experiences, not a traditional career path for, for, uh, an army soldier, uh, officer for sure. Um, the other thing is that Mike will talk about this a little bit maybe, but we work with first responders all the time, but there was a, uh, you know, we would work yeah. with, so uh, you know, we're the National Guard has that dual role, right? There are state missions. And then so the governor owns you. And anytime there's a hurricane or I mean, both Mike and I, I can remember being up in Massachusetts, driving around in a deuce and a half, uh, picking up people uh, by Revere Beach where there was, you know, uh, flooding uh, and they couldn't get out of the houses. So we were putting them in the back of a five ton. So, you know, that, I mean, uh, so that's the interesting thing about the National Guard is it's its own interesting and unique animal, but serves that uh, great dual role uh, as a Federal Reserve and uh, availability to the governor. Absolutely. And I, uh, I I look back at my own career, you know, active duty and reserve and, uh, you know, being deployed on both active and reserve statuses, just the the element, and I learned quickly how to appreciate that citizen soldier, right, of a citizen marine, citizen whatever that was in uniform, uh, so unique from the standpoint of looking at the, the experiences that those men and women brought to the fight, especially if you had a full-time job as an electrician or a plumber or a doctor mm-hmm. or whatever, and then you put your uniform on, and you may be doing a job that had in the military that had nothing to do with what you were doing the civilian side. So very, uh, a, a very important role from the standpoint of what the guard has, has done for our nation. And obviously, you know, y'all have both experienced that. Now, Mike, you, you retired as a Sergeant major and how many years did you spend total? Um, I think it was 22 active. And then uh, I think I had, five that were reserve time. Okay. So if I'm adding it up correctly, we're the three of us just shy of a hundred years of service here. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the one thing that Mike, you know, always stands out to me. I know in in an earlier conversation, you talked about uh, retiring as a Sergeant major and someone said, well, you were a command Sergeant major. And, you spent time as a command sergeant major, but then retired in a, I believe, a non-command sergeant major billet. And right. I, it's, it's one of those things that I, as a Marine, it took me a while to really understand what was going on in the Army and the National Guard, because <laughs> if you're a Marine sergeant major, you are a command sergeant major, period, because that's the only billet you can fill is that as a, a sergeant major to a commander, as a senior enlisted advisor. And then I learned how multifaceted the army used its senior enlisted uh, whether it was jumping from first sergeant to master sergeant master sergeant back to first sergeant and how you could be a sergeant major but not be a command sergeant major so unique from that standpoint and i think uh, again from a, a a rule of diversity and experience that really opens you up to really doing a, a lot of different uh job opportunities and or the men and women that you're able to serve with really expands your realm and reach. So uh, what can you share with us that was really unique about your experiences within the Army and um, and not necessarily just within the realm of being a Sergeant Major, but anything else that you may have experienced? Well, you know, the you know, I think the first eight years that I was associated with the military, I kept trying to get out. 
I, I didn't want to stay in. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, it just wasn't working for me the way I wanted it to. Um, but eventually uh, something clicked. And um, uh, I, I think when I became an E5, a sergeant in the Army, um, that's when I really said, hey, this is, this is good stuff. I'm having a good time. And uh, training soldiers is a very rewarding thing. And then the friendships you make along the way, um, you know, they last a lifetime. Um, I really don't have a big network of friends uh, outside of the veteran community. Um, I'm not trying to make it that way. Uh, you know, even when I, uh, when I retired from the military, I, I worked for uh, uh, British Aerospace Systems with, uh, with a joint ID task force in uh, the Arlington, Virginia area. And I got to work with a lot of civilians there, but, you know, they're not on my uh, email distribution list. You know, it's not that kind of friendship. But uh, the few that were there that were veterans, I hear from every day still. And uh, Ed and I spend vacations together. And, you know, we've some other guys that him and I have worked with. We still hang out. Um, But out of the whole career, to me, that time in Afghanistan was maybe the most rewarding because those were 18, 20 hour days we were moving from one combat outpost to another practically every day. Um, the, the rapid planning that had to be done to execute the mission, uh, you know, having a comms NCO that could get our radios prepped and ready to roll all the time for us, just that uniqueness. Um, uh, I think you'd have to be, somewhere between MARSOC and special forces to have a similar career experience that we had in Afghanistan at the time embedded with the Afghan army, um, building remote outposts. Uh, I always, uh, had a knack for becoming the cash control officer on deployments. <laughs> Once you get to that designation, you, you're always the money guy. So, uh, I would, draw large sums of cash from finance and pay to build huts for the Afghan army, buying diesel in Jalalabad, um, having our home visa break down, driven back on Pakistani rollback trucks. I mean, it was just every day was a significant emotional event. And uh, it had some bigger challenges than me because he had more responsibility for the whole brigade. And, uh, it was a, it was a really good time for us. And we had some really good NCOs and officers to make it all work. No, that's powerful. You bring, you say all of that. And I started having flashbacks of my own of those, the, the hardest experiences sometimes are the most rewarding, right? It's those like to your point, 18, 20 hour days where you're like, how on earth are we going to make it through this? And you're, yeah, unfortunately, we were, we were spending a lot of time cursing, right? Uh, just the, the idea of, of putting in that much time. But when you look back on it, it without a doubt is the most rewarding. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. Did we, uh, did we lose Ed? I think, I think we may have lost Ed. So maybe he'll pop back on here with us in a second. Okay. Now, now did, um, you know, I, I do want to ask about, obviously a, a, a trying time in your life. And I think for, for any man or woman that served in uniform and, uh, you know, has suffered injuries, you know, both physical and emotional. Um, and I, I don't know if I fully know your story of when obviously you were hurt in that turret. What, what amount of damage was done? Uh, and and what did you kind of go through? Are you did you end up in Bethesda? Uh, at the time, we still had the Army running Walter Reed and the Navy running Reed. Bethesda. Okay, Walter. So Reed. I, I I ended up at Walter Reed in the beginning, and then um, as years went by, I started 
getting things done at Bethesda because everything transitioned there. And my last three or four surgeries were at Bethesda. Um, but as far as when we got blown up, uh, the first thing I want to point out is because we were a joint joint task force over there, our higher headquarters was, I think it was the 12th Marines, 12th yeah. Marine Corps or 12th Battalion. I don't know what they were, actually. Um, so our higher headquarters were some really tough, hard-to-get-along Marines in the beginning. Um, we wore them down. That, right? Yeah. We, <laughs> we found some common ground and really, uh, you know, you start relying on each other and, you know, everybody's trying to accomplish the same thing. Sorry, so he's I, back. I, yeah, I bopped out there for a minute, just froze, and so, I just freaked What I, What I want to go to with this, Lance, is uh, we were transitioning from, like, one of the main bases in Afghanistan to go back down to where we had our brigade uh, talk set up in Jalalabad, Jaff Air Base in eastern Afghanistan, and as we're leaving Kabul, uh, we blow the a hose on our radiator, or the radiator blew on our Humvee. So we pull into our camp that has our Marine headquarters that we're underneath, and uh, our very uh, tricky, sly chief warrant officer that we had, our maintenance warrant officer, was a former Marine and he had a great relationship with the Marine headquarters there. And he talked to their first Sergeant and got them to loan us a literally brand new, brand new Humvee that the Marines stole from the air force from Bagram air force base. (laughs) (laughs) Right. No surprise there. And, uh, that's the Humvee we were in when we got attacked. And uh, if we weren't so in that one, we wouldn't be alive today. Yeah. Um, you know, they wanted us to bring it back like in new condition. They were very adamant about how clean it had to be when it came back. <laughs> kind of it back. All right. <laughs> uh, but it was a suicide vehicle, a VBID that took us out. And, uh, some of the shrapnel from that explosion actually penetrated uh, my combat helmet, went right through the right side of the helmet. So uh, I had some significant (coughs) ear damage, inner ear damage, outer ear damage, uh, shrapnel. Uh, We both had a lot of burns, a lot of second and third degree burns, Um, uh, fractures and shrapnel and, um, uh, large, uh, had a large lump on the back of my head, which ended up, uh, was the result of me losing in a lot of my balance. Um, and I had some speech issues and, you know, I, I was in some pretty intense rehab for a couple of years. Um, which I was fortunate to live near all these resources, right? I had sure. Walter Reed, I had Bethesda, um, so, you know, I got into the, the polytrauma program at the VA and, um, you know, just took advantage of everything I could because there was a point, Lance, where, um, I wasn't dealing with the PTSD. I was, I was just trying to suppress it and, um, it was bleeding out into, uh, the work that I was trying to do after I retired, I carried it to work with me. Uh, it was tearing my family up. And, you know, finally I realized if I don't get this thing under control, uh, I'm going to hurt myself or somebody else. Mm. And I, I really engaged everything that I could for uh, trying to heal myself. And it's, you know, it's a long road to recovery, but, you know, we got to get out there and we got to seek the help. It's not going to come to us. Mm-hmm. Either we got to find it or somebody's got to take us to it. 
And then we got to make the commitment to be responsible to, to stay with it. You know, a lot of veterans, maybe you guys have seen this, you help them out with their VA disability claim. And once that's, uh, they get their award letter from the VA, whatever disability they're determined to have, they break contact. Um, they're done. You know, they, they stop going to their VA appointments. Uh, they pull out of uh, PTSD sessions, counseling, you know, peer groups, whatever. And um, so, you know, it, you don't get a medication or a, a pill that's going to fix this. It's a, uh, it's a lifelong journey. And um, you got to stay engaged in, you know, Fortunately, the group like Sheepdogs are out there to provide that umbrella for people to get the guidance and the, and the leadership they need to, to find resources. You know, I always say, because uh, I was getting overwhelmed at one point helping too many veterans uh, trying to do the work for them. You got to you got to lead them to the resources that can help them out. And I think that's for Sheepdogs have played a major role in, you know, your different uh, programs that you have that help veterans connect to resources. Yeah. I couldn't and agree more that that's the key, right? Is y'all, y'all said it several times and you're hundred percent right. You know, it, it's that old saying, I can lead a horse to water, but I can't make him drink. Uh, I think that it's up, our veterans have to do the drinking. We can point them in the right direction. We can show them where access to help is. But ultimately, they have to be willing to receive that help. <laughs> I think, um, Lance, uh, you know, the VA is not – I've had uh, really a good experience with the VA. Um, but I also, as Mike said, if you want to you wanna stay healthy, you want to get better, right, you need to participate in your care. And I can tell you right now – uh, I'm never going to send someone away that contacts me. Um, and what happened? I think you got to you got to keep you got to keep um, you got to keep trying. If you if you quit, you're quitting on yourself. But more so, you don't want to quit, especially on your family, right? I That's mean, right. and so. You know, the, the three pillars, right, which is, you know, good choices. Uh, I think, you know, well, won't go down this road too far, but faith is a, a mm-hmm. plays a big part. Absolutely. And then and being physically active. I mean, it solves. I, I you know, I'm not simplifying it. Those are all things you got to participate in. Right. right. And so it's, um, you know, uh, if you don't do it, then you're not going to get better. You're not going to be able to, you know. I've always said you're all through life. The hardest thing you got to do is, is take control of that black side. Right. Cause I believe everyone has it and most people control it very well. All right. There's some little thing, but if you don't beat that back, you're never going to get better. And it has to be a conscious thing every day. Well, and you both, one thing that keeps resonating to me out here in both of your stories is, how much you've, you've tried to help other veterans, right? And I think there's a, there's a new mission and purpose there. And I think for a lot of us, I mean, I, the reason this organization exists is I, I found purpose in helping my brothers and sisters in need. I wanted to keep giving back. I wanted to keep leading and serving. But I also think, and, and Mike, you mentioned it a second ago as well, I think from the helping, you started to feel what it was doing to you. You were exhausting yourself with this new mission. And one of the things that we stress is the importance of taking care of yourself, right? Is uh, we use the example, when you get on an airplane, the, the flight attendant talks about the safety brief. And one of the first things they say is when the oxygen mask drops from the ceiling, you've got to put it on yourself before you help anyone else, right? Because if, if you don't take care of you, you're going to die and kill the people you're trying to help because you've not first ensured your own security and safety. And that goes back to, I think, the importance of, I know I've felt it, 
uh, Mike, I think you alluded to it as well, is that it can exhaust you um, if you're not making sure you're taking care of yourself. But that goes out to every veteran. No matter what it is that you, what road you take or what new path or journey you experience, uh, don't forget about the importance of self-care. Don't forget about the importance of recognizing what you need to do to ensure that you're in a healthy place because you can't take care of your family properly if you're not taking care of you. If you're not doing the things that are important to you being in a good physical and mental and a place of faith, that if that's part of what helps balance you, then it's critical that you you bring those together. So I've, um, I tell you, I, unfortunately, I know we're running out of time. And, I, you know, I, I, I can't say thank you enough to both of you for your service and the sacrifices that you've made for our nation. Um, I always say it's about service, sacrifice, and a willingness to fight. And that fighting isn't always just the literal going out there and shooting at the bad guy. Uh, I think you both have shown a willingness to fight for your your fellow service members when you both said, I'm going to climb up in that gun turret uh, and I'm going to serve in whatever way I have to serve to take care of the men and women that I am leading. Uh, on that note, I would like to end with something from both of you. I always like to end on a really positive or happy note as much as we can. Uh, if you can share a, a quick funny story or funny experience that you look back on and maybe makes you chuckle or makes you laugh. And yeah, I recognize that civilians always say we veterans have got a really skewed way of looking at funny, right? It, a lot of times it comes at the expense of someone else's pain. Um, you know, I, I always laugh when I think about the gas chamber and us walking <laughs> out of there in pain and snot hanging down to our feet and people crying like little babies. Uh, which I was one of, you know, unfortunately coming out of there. Yeah. But it, it, it is those things that sometimes we look back on with fondness and, again, a little bit of a chuckle. Could each of you share a, a quick little story? And I'll start with you, Ed, on something that just brings back something positive from your experience in the military. Yeah, I so first of all, Lance, I, I, and thank you, I mean, for, uh, you know, I, I don't think you all give yourself enough credit. I mean, you really are making a difference. And, uh, you know, I, I like thank I you. said at the start, I am really happy and honored to have this time with you. Uh, you're really, uh, your organization is fantastic. And you're thinking more way beyond yourself, which is so hard nowadays. But I have one quick story, and unfortunately, uh, it, so Mike and I, when we were, so we transitioned from a Bagram Air Base, and they think Mike was a Kuwait that they took it. No, not Kuwait. Was it Qatar? Where we went, there was a military hospital that, uh, as we did the transition back to be treated in America. So Mike and I are there, and, and we're kind of the walking wounded at this point. And when they got us in some things, so we we didn't have anything but whatever little clothes they gave us because everything we had was back in our hooch. We got, you know, we got blown up and they left us, you know, we had like some gym shorts on or something. So Mike and I go, Hey, we want to take a walk down to the PX. And we, so we're walking out of the PX and this air force colonel stops us. Right. And he, he informs us that he's the, uh, the air base safety officer. Um, we were like, oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> and he says to us, why don't you have your PT belt on? And Mike and I are covered in bandages. I mean, there's no one in their right mind that would know. And he knows that one of the missions his base has is as a waypoint as people are transitioning to land stool and land stool back to the United States for treatment. And so uh, we look at him and we're like, are you kidding me? Are you out of your mind? So Mike's a little angry at this point, and Mike lurches at this guy. Right? I got to grab Mike and hang on to him for dear life because he's going to choke this this Air Force Colonel out. But it was the it was almost surreal because you know you see it like you know the old war movies where you know they call them the rear end you know rump right rear area MFs right and and he's just this this you know pogue. And we just, I mean, not even 24 hours, we were in, in you know, day-to-day -day combat. 
right? And this guy is this guy's worried about a PT belt. We thought it was the most ridiculous thing in the world, but I did save Mel, uh, Mike from getting a court martial from stra- uh, strangling a colonel. So I I do feel like I I really did serve my country on that day. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> and I I do. It's it, I think we've all got stories similar to that where. You know, you come back filthy. I can remember walking into a chow hall. Uh, this was Desert Shield, Desert Storm. We'd been up on the front line. We come back to an air base, Al Jabel, I think was the name of it. We're just filthy. Haven't showered in, you know, three or four weeks. And in walks someone that, you know, has showered probably twice a day, looks at us and how filthy we are, and immediately starts to give us the riot act of how dare we walk into this chow hall so filthy right so um and l- luckily i was a young lance corporal at the time of the Marine Corps, and fortunately i had a, a master sergeant that stepped up and grabbed this captain and and read him the riot act on you know why he wasn't to talk to us that way right so i i appreciate those because that brought again talking about memories that brought back that memory that i hadn't thought of in a long time and just how crazy that is so mike what's a quick one on your end well, I really, I'm not sure which one to bring up, but I'd rather <laughs> share with you because I don't think you know, you know the reason I joined Sheepdogs. No. Well, I got to change location here. My dogs are going nuts here. <laughs> Speaking of dogs, right? Yeah. So the uh, the reason I joined the Sheepdogs, you know, everybody has a reason, I guess. Um, At the time, I was uh, training two service dogs, the two you hear now howling. And uh, we were heading to uh, to Colorado. We had to go there for several times for the training with these dogs. And... uh, I wanted something to wear on the airplane um, that kind of uh, indicated, you know, that I was some kind of responsible person with a dog, you know, not a canine officer, but, you know, just something that uh, looks professional, something, you know, related to dog care or whatever. So I'm on the Internet and I'm searching for, you know, shirts and hats. And I don't know why Google did this. Sheepdogs pop up. And at the time you guys were offering, you join Sheepdogs, uh, you pay your one-time membership fee, you get like two T-shirts, a golf shirt, and then a hat. I said, hey, that'll look good on the airplane. I'm joining. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's marketing at its finest, right? You, you see yeah. a, a logo or a brand that matches who you are as an individual or what your need is. And uh, I think there drives a success. So, but I, 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 but I thoroughly enjoy being a sheepdog, and uh, it's been two or three years. But every disaster response mission is like a, uh, it's like a platoon or a company operation, uh, and you're just doing so much to help a community that needs tremendous help. And uh, sheepdogs, uh, your organization, Lance, has a good way of making sure. That People that need the help the most are the ones that are getting the help from sheepdogs. I, I appreciate that. And I was, when you said that, Mike, I was thinking that each disaster mission for me a lot of times feels like a reunion uh, because I get yeah. to see people like yourself that I haven't seen in a long time and we end up, you know, connecting and sharing old stories together. And uh, that's, I think, part of why I'm really going to enjoy this podcast is uh having a chance one to get to know people for the first time like yourself ed that i may not uh have a past relationship with but also at the same time connecting with you know friends and or people that i've served with that uh, i'm going to enjoy you know hearing their stories and reminiscing but with that being said thank you both so much for joining us today this is uh this is our second sheepdog nation podcast and i can't think of a better way to have spent it uh, learning more about both of you and your amazing service and sacrifice. Thank you to your families, obviously, again, for uh, for supporting you both through your journeys. And uh, I look forward to seeing you both out there, and maybe we can catch up with a good beer, cold beer sometime. But uh, 
on that note, Sheepdog Nation, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast today. We appreciate Mike and Ed being part of it with us, uh, and we'll we'll look forward to bringing podcast number three to you here in a few weeks. Um, thanks again for listening to us today. Uh, God bless everyone out there, and uh, uh, simple fidelis. Good luck.